Today's reading comes from Romans 12, 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Good morning. Wow. Good morning. I feel like that's a habit. So if, if, if I say good morning and you're like, good morning, we're going to do it again. So we just got to get it right the first time. We can work into that. It's something for us to all practice when we show up, right? Hey, I want to point out something really quick. We recognize as a church that every good gift comes from the Father. Every good thing in your life, including your talents, your gifts, the, every blessing you have, is a direct gift from the Lord. So anything we do or anything that works through us for good isn't just us. Obviously, that's God working through us. And yet, in that context, we are still told in Scripture to honor one another in our good. And specifically, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so he hates this, but I want to take just a moment and show honor to my brother Mike, because for the last month, he has brought it, and he has done an incredible job of walking us through Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, and I just want to say in the presence of all these guys, man, I am so thankful that my family gets to be here and be part of a church that teaches through things like that, and I just want to honor you for doing an incredible job. And I want to give you an opportunity to kind of do the same if, as we've walked through this, this passage has kind of meant, has really jumped out at you. And again, just give you an opportunity with me to show my brother a little bit of honor. So would you do that with me? You hate it, but it's biblical. It's right there. I just read it to you. You hate it. So, so, um... I, I want to let you in on a little inside joke, all right? So I don't know if any of them are in here or not, but we have this thing in my life group, and obviously it developed in my life group. It's a little inside joke, all right? And so, yeah, there, Anthony, Anthony knows. So um, some of us, and, and, and my life group can be a little random, and we can chase squirrels and just go on and on. And so we've developed this kind of silent cue, which uh, someone looks at you while you're talking, and they just kind of go, and that means like bring it in, you know, bring it in. Um, I'm going to regret telling you this, but I'm going to guess there's going to be times this morning you're going to look at me and go like, bring it in a little bit, all right? So uh, I'm owning it. There's a lot here, and we're not even going to get through all of it. We're just going to get through what we can, and we're really going to walk through Romans chapter 12, which is a point of transition. 
And I'm going to talk, take that, this time to really try to set up the transition and the context for the transition as we go through the next uh, few chapters in Romans. In Romans 1 through 11, we really focused on justification, uh, conversion of the believer, God's role in that, our role in that, really, if you will, the truth concerning our position in Christ. So the truth concerning the Christian's position in Christ. But we're going to pivot and we're going to change here in chapter 12 and we're going to begin to see what we're called to. We're going to see Paul begin to speak to our pursuit. Because if these things are true about our position in Christ, man, it will change the way we live our life. It is practical and applicable, and we will live different. And so what's going to happen is we get into chapter 12, we're going to begin to talk about the Christian life based on these truths that we've unpacked for the first 11. And a few things I want to do to kind of just set in your mind as a little bit of a filter, as a little bit of context as we walk through this to just kind of uh, help get our, our thinking in the right spot. A few things. First thing. The Christian isn't simply improved after conversion. All right? After conversion, the the Christian isn't just a little bit better. It's not like Jesus just gets kind of tacked on. Instead, the Christian has a completely different position in creation. He has a completely different position in his relationship to the Creator. He is a new creature. And this truth has major implications. And so if it is true we are a new creature, we have a new position and a new standing, it changes the way we live. The other thing I want to get just and kind of own this morning is I'm going to use a term to kind of summarize the context here in the beginning of Romans chapter 12. It's a common term. And what we're going to see in Romans chapter 12, especially in these first few verses, is this call to be a living sacrifice. It is a call to death, to dying to self. And the term we're going to use for that is the term repentance. The term repentance, it's it's what repentance means. It's to turn from self, to die to self, and to turn to Jesus and to life in him. And I think the reason that maybe jumps out in my mind is one of my favorite uh, quotes from the Baptist Faith and Message. Some of you guys may not know what that is. If, if you're a member of our church, it is our joint statement that works across the cooperation of the Southern Baptist Convention. So when Mike talks about all of our churches around the country in the Southern Baptist Convention that get together to pull resources for the advancement of the gospel and to work together, there is a like faith statement that we all agree to. That's the Baptist faith and message. That's what it is. And there's a line in that Baptist faith and message that uh, relates to conversion. And it simply says this, faith and repentance are inseparable experiences of grace. In other words, you cannot have authentic faith and not have repentance. And you cannot have authentic repentance and not have faith. The two must work together. You cannot have faith in who Jesus is revealed to be in his scriptures, the Son of God supreme, and not realize he is worth everything your whole life. 
and surrender it all and turn to him. That he and he alone is the source of value and of worth and of joy and in purpose and meaning. And so these two things must work together. And this has been on my mind over the last year. About a year ago, um, my daughter began to have conversations about what does it mean to place faith in Jesus. And she's grown up in a home in which the word has been taught to her. And she's always had this kind of general belief in Jesus because she's always been taught that. And I'll just be honest, I think she could beat at least half of you in Bible trivia. She's not here today. I'm going to just take that as providence. She's not here today. I don't think I could say some of these things if she were. But she's grown up in the context of the Word. And there's always been a, yeah, I believe Jesus is God. But when we begin to talk about what it means to really place saving faith in repentance, that was a challenge. And so we begin to wrestle with what does it mean to surrender my life and see Jesus worth everything, even if it costs me in my life everything. And as we walked through the summer, we took the summer and we did just a 10-week study, her and I, and just tried to go through Scripture and give definition to what faith really is, what repentance really looked like. And there was never these moments where, you know, I'm going like, so, you know, you know, like, look, as a kid, you guys get this as a parent. If you say to an eight-year-old, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? I'm pretty sure I know the answer, right? And she's going to say that back. And so there's never this moment of trying to twist or anything. There's just the communication and the teaching of the word and holding those standards in front of her. And somewhere through the middle of the summer, she just hit this point where it wasn't really it wasn't hugely defiant, but she just was like, look, I don't know that I think it's worth that. I mean, what if it cost me my life? What if the kids at school make fun of me? I don't know. And it wasn't maybe that articulated, but you could just tell there was a moment where this is the wrestling point. Our series ended. That was it. We didn't talk about it for weeks. There was none of that conversation. We got kind of back with the FTP, and we're just rolling. And then that night, she comes running up, and she's got these these tears coming out. She'd kind of been in bed. She's by herself and she goes, Dad, and she's filled with joy and at the same time kind of just broken. She goes, he's worth it. I, I, I just did it. I, I realized, you know, I'm like that guy in the Bible. You know the one who says, I believe, help my unbelief? And so that's what I just prayed to Jesus and I said, you're worth it. I know you are. Just help my unbelief too. And I thought, you know, I said, we'll, we'll wait through it and we'll see in the morning. And we got up in the morning and we talked again. And I was reminded, even as a pastor who sees so many people come into the faith, the work of the Holy Spirit on our hearts and how that's just neat, she, she was, it, there was really a difference there. A few days goes by and the, the kind of the newness wears off. You know, I, I, I kind of grew up around a lot of youth ministry and stuff like that. You know, the camp, we're, we're a week away from camp now. The camp experience is gone and we're back to real life. And she's sitting there at the dinner table, and she's gone through school. You know, she's gotten in trouble. She's done wrong things. She's been, t- you know, all this kind of stuff. It's gotten hard. And she goes, Dad, do you really think I place faith in Jesus? I don't, I said, I don't know. What do you think? She goes, I do, but it doesn't feel like I thought it would feel. And I said, sweetie, what did you think it would feel like? And what she described next was something out of like a Marvel movie. You know, like the Hulk. There was this immediate transformation, and I'm like, whoa! It's like Christian super person, right? 
And we begin to talk through this, and I begin to have conversations about how we discern the work of God in our life. And I was reminding her that there will come a day, especially because she has my DNA, (laughs) where she will not remember what she said that night, what she was thinking. She won't remember the way she felt. And I said, sweetie, the evidence of your salvation is not found in a memory. That's true. Some of us have bought into that lie in this room. The evidence of your salvation is made known by your fruits. That's what Jesus said. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you. If God is big enough to redeem you, to convert you, He is also big enough to grow you. So in conversion, when you first, in faith and repentance, acknowledge who Christ is, you are declared righteous before God. And the God who is holy enough, powerful enough, supreme enough to declare you righteous is also just as powerful to make you into what He has declared you to be. And He loves you enough that He would send your Son. So He loves you enough He will grow you. The evidence of our salvation is found in the fruits of God's work in us as He conforms us more and more into the image of His Son. Simply stated, the evidence of salvation is found in your transformational growth. Not your works, but God's work in you. Listen, if you're here and the only evidence you have of your salvation over the last 20 years is a memory from 20 years ago, I want you to be concerned. I want to tell you the same thing Paul said. Test your salvation. Work it out. Look for the work of God in you, progressing you day over day, fighting against your sin and conviction and redeeming and restoration to conform you more and more into the image of Jesus. You say, what does that have to do with what we're going to talk about? Because when we talk about repentance, I want you to understand something, that repentance deepens just like our faith deepens. I don't know as a church why we feel like we need to separate those two in this regard, but remember they are inseparable acts of grace. It is incomplete to think repentance only happens once and it does not grow. Conversion happens once, but the constant turning to the Lord deepens as our understanding of who he is and who we are deepens just as our faith grows and deepens as we understand him and who he has set us apart to be more and more think of it in the context of love it would be the same you don't walk into your marriage set before your your spouse and your wedding and say i love you but just this once and then i'm just i'm where i'm at i won't grow in that anymore what you got today that's all you're getting yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an absurd reality. And so the more we understand who our spouse is, the, more, the, the commitment is we will love and pursue it more and more. The, the same is true with our faith. We see that as our faith deepens, on our, as our understanding of a God deepens, these things work in parallel. Same thing, repentance. Our repentance deepens as our understanding of who God is and who he set us apart to be deepens. 
And so that's an important context in the transition that is about to happen. Because as we walk through this, we got to just be honest enough to realize, man, this calling that is about to be given to us is a heavy calling. It's not going to ask for part of us, a section, an area. It's going to ask for all of you. And that's something that we continue to grow in and deepen in. So let me give you a statement. The more God reveals himself to the believer and conforms them to the image of his son, the more they are compelled to turn from themselves and find life and joy in Jesus. Let me say it again. The more God reveals himself to the believer and conforms them to the image of the son, the more they are compelled to turn from themselves and find life and joy in Jesus. And this is Paul's first point that he's going to make as he transitions into a conversation about Christian life. So let's pick up in verse 1, Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our big truth this morning is that repentance, surrender, life surrender, death to self, turning to Christ, this is worship. Repentance is worship. Let's break it down. Paul says in verse 1, therefore, all right, therefore. I don't know if this is a coordinating conjunction or a conjunctive adverb. Or I, I don't even know if those are real things. I'm just going to be honest. I, I had to like just Google to figure out what those words were, right? I don't know any of that stuff. I mean, Roger, you don't either, buddy. I, I mean, you're with me. We don't know. Here's what we do know, though, all right? Those words link us back to a previous context. They're, they're taking us back to a context that's been laid out. And in this case, it's the end of chapter 11. If you remember, Mike's done an incredible job of walking us through 9 and 10 and the early part of 11 where it really the hows and the depths and the complexities of the hows of conversion work. But it ends at the end of chapter 11 with who and a reminder of who God is. Let me read it to you. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever amen here's what paul's saying because god is the creator because he is the sustainer of all things because he is supreme i appeal to you verse one i appeal to you it, it means I, I i i charge you it means i call you we make a lot in Christian circles, and rightfully so, about identifying and discerning God's calling on our lives. 
Paul's going to give you a certain calling on your life and on my life. This is part of your calling. It is an absolute component of what God has called each believer to. And because God is who He is, because He is creator and sustainer and He is supreme, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, he says. Going back to Romans chapter 8, we see this connection that in Christ we have been adopted into the family of God. We are joint heirs and brothers and sisters with Christ. We are in the family of God. And so Paul's clearly talking here to the believers, to those who have been redeemed, to those who have been brought into the family of God. He's talking to Christians, authentic Jesus followers. And he says, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, Paul is about to call us to a seemingly high price. A high price. And there is this reminder, as he does, of our position in Christ. Because the price that is to be paid, Paul needs you to remember your position in Christ. Because you, left to yourself, cannot pay the price. And it is worth it, Paul needs you to know. It's worth it. Every good gift is given by the mercies of God, and this calling is no different. It is merciful. It is there to help you. It is there as part of your very conversion in which you are set apart for Christ's likeness. And so Paul reminds us to see and pursue this calling accordingly by the mercies of God, understanding that it is He who works through us. So then he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Here's the calling, present to display or to stand up. Um, we use this term at Tri-Cities, to make known. That's the way we say this in a lot of our terminology. To make known the glory of God. To make known who he is. This is the calling, to present, to make known. My, my favorite place in this is with uh, Peter and Tabitha in Acts chapter 9. If you remember, she's dead. Peter goes, raises her up. But in verse 41, chapter 9, Peter says, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and the widows, he presented, that's the same exact word, okay? He presented her alive and it became known. It became known. See, this is what we do. In Christ, we present ourselves in Him, our life in Him, and we make it known. Our very life, our very bodies, we make it known. So what do you present? You, you present that very thing, your body, your life, your flesh, your being, your, your, your action, all of you. But there's a... There's a thing I want you to catch in this that's implied. It goes all the way back into this, the context of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 10, Paul says, the body is dead because of sin. And so, if Christ is in you, 
You've repented. You've surrendered your body, your life. Watch this. You are literally a dead man walking. I don't mean that in like the Western kind of like I'm out to get you, meet you. No, no, I don't mean that. I mean you are a living testimony of someone who has died to self and found life in Christ. And so Paul says, stand up, make known, display your dead, surrendered body that is now alive in Christ. That is a sight to see. That is a powerful testimony. And this is our calling, to live this out. And so how do we, how do, we do this? Paul keeps going. He says, as a living sacrifice. As a living sacrifice. Living in surrender. Living out our repentance. Finding Jesus worthy of our life. Not tacking him on but surrendering all of it, all to him I owe, all of it, because he is worthy. A living sacrifice. There is a, uh, probably a tendency for us today when we read back into this passage to read sacrifice as just uh, a small surrender or a, uh, a partial surrender or something, but in its context, it is... Uh, a picture back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. It is a blood sacrifice in which an animal would be, would be killed. And its blood, its very life, would be a picture of atonement for the people. This is not a part. This is life. All of it. And for us as believers, I want you to catch something. We we see this differently. We're here with Paul. On the back end, we realize that Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain. He gave His life that we might have life in Him. He took our death and gave us His life. And in so doing, He redeems for Himself a people through faith by the grace of God. In the context at which this is written, I honestly think Paul has to make sure that the word living is in there. Because they, the way they would have read it was such a, a, a life for a life sacrificial picture that it really would have came into question, should the believer lay down their life, their, their physical life? Should the believer commit suicide in order to sacrifice their life? Is this what it means to actually die to self and so Paul says no this is a living sacrifice and it gives context back to what Jesus even said in which Jesus in Luke chapter 9 verse 23 says take up your cross and follow me and in that day again a cross just isn't some small sacrifice watch this the cross is a symbol of death a painful death, a suffering death, a death that is hard. But it is life death. It's not just a component. It's not just a portion. Jesus says, die to self and follow me. It's right after that that he goes on into verse 24 and he says in this context, for whoever would save his life 
Try to hold on to it. We'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I want to chase a side note. I want to make sure you catch this. Sacrifice isn't easy. It's always hard. It's always hard. And we are so selfish. We are so self-centered. And it's hard for us in just simple things. Jeff was in the first service. I remember about a year ago, Jeff and I are going the back way over to... uh, uh, to get lunch through gray, right? I don't remember any road names, I'm sorry, but you know, there's that little back way, it's got that little tunnel you have to drive through. It's like a one-lane tunnel in gray, right? And there's this like understood method at which people have gone through this tunnel. I've observed it. Uh, they come up, they stop, then one person goes, then the next person goes, then the next person goes. It drives me crazy. It may seem fair, but it's so inefficient. It's, this isn't downtown Atlanta, people right? Just let one group of cars go, then the other group of cars go. Why are we doing this? It takes long. Anyway, so it bugs me. So on the way there, Jeff has to listen to my rant like you guys just did, right? Listen to my rant all the way there. We eat, we come back, Jeff is driving, and sure enough, we come up to the intersection where we got to wait to go through the tunnel. There's a car in front of us, and there's two cars on the other side, and it's the car in front of us is turned to go. Jeff's like, I'm just going to do what you, I'm going to do your method. I'm like, let's do it. We got cargoes and we're behind them. Clearly a more efficient method. We go flying through behind the other car. The people on the other side, they frowned upon the more efficient method. Um, they didn't like it as much. They told Jeff and I we were number one. And we laughed and prayed for them. I don't know. Um, Here's what I want you to think about. Driving's an easy example of this, okay? It's a really easy example to see it. We're selfish. We're selfish. That guy, I wish you could see his face. It was bright red. He was mad. We offended him. We might have cost that guy five seconds, all right? Offended, right? We're selfish. And I'm not talking about even big things. I'm just talking about little things. And so here in a definition of our repentance and our daily repentance, our living sacrifice, the calling on your life is everything. Everything. And this is so crucial as we walk through Romans. Because yes, in Romans 12 and 13, we're going to see some absolutes, but we're going to get into Romans chapter 14. We're going to talk about issues that aren't even right or wrong. And they're your freedoms you have. And yet Paul's going to tell you, you have the responsibility to set aside your freedom for your love of your brother. And if we're not dying to self, we have no chance to understand that correctly. Because we're going to feel entitled. We're going to make it about us. And so here there is a very clear picture. Die to self every day every day it's hard it was hard for jesus if you remember even before the cross jesus says look if there's another way we still fight our sin and our temptation and there is a war in us and in every moment 
The Christian is called to die to self and the temptations of our sin and our pride to pick up our cross, our surrender, our repentance, and in faith that Jesus is worth it, pursue him. Because this is our spiritual worship. That's what Paul says. This is our spiritual worship, our living surrender, our repentance, growing day in and day out as God works in us. This is our worship. Just as in the Old Testament, sacrificing that lamb is the worship of who God is and the recognition of his authority and who we are. Our living sacrifice every day is the believer's act of worship. It's our calling. And so the church worships through our redeemed lives. See, God is exalted in your life. Listen, not just your song. Your song is an expression. Your life is spirit and truth because of your position in Jesus. If you want to go back and study that and see that and hear what Jesus says, go back to John chapter 4 and just kind of study through the Samaritan woman and Jesus' exchange with her. And he says, there is coming a day where you'll worship in spirit and truth. In the position of who the very Son of God is in your position in Christ, redeemed. Our lives are worship. And so our big truth that repentance is worship, you can see it right out of the bat in verse 1. And just this transition from the truths about our position into this teaching about its impact and how we live it out as Christians. And I want to just take the next few moments, and we're going to go through these really quick. I've got like 10 minutes to go through these tops, all right? So we're going to go through these real quick. I just want to give you some big ideas, okay? At, at Tri-Cities, these are implications of this truth. And they're going to come right from these texts. There's notes and things. You can go back and study and look later. But I just want to go through a few of these really fast, all right? First, repentance is a living sacrifice. The Christian's life is lived in sacrificial surrender, making known our death and our life in Christ. It's the picture of baptism, right? Repentance, second, is exalting. It's exalting. It is our spiritual worship. Our repentance makes much of the Creator, makes much of the triune God. The Christian's surrender, the turning, is exalting. Because worship isn't just something the Christian does. Worship is also who the Christian is. His very position in Christ. And so our surrender to that is our act of worship. Third, repentance is countercultural. It's different. As we get into verse 2, Paul shifts and he's going to give this do not be then. And it's a great little outline for you to go back and study. First he says do not be conformed to this world. The Christian's life is set apart from the world. You're not going to conform to the world and faithfully die to self because that's not the way the world works. It will not value such a worldview. And so you will be different and there will be a price paid. There's a promise in Scripture, Paul says to Timothy, that all those who pursue godliness will be persecuted. That's a promise. It's prescriptive. It's in Scripture. 
So yes, you're promised good things and things that are worthwhile. You're also promised persecution if you die to self and pursue godliness. This is there because of who you are in Him. Because repentance is countercultural. Fourth, repentance is a new way of thinking. He says, be, don't be conformed, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by, or that, it's then, it's kind of the same thought, then by, or that by, testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Christian is transformed by truth. Let me say that again. Everyone, everyone hear this. The Christian is transformed by truth. We are discipled and we grow by the truth of the revelation, God making himself known, of who God is. That's how we grow. That's how we're transformed. And we have become a culture of lazy thinkers. We are. I mean, we just are. And we have to acknowledge it. That's me, that's you, and that's been that way for a long time. Who pridefully excuse themselves from the pursuit, from the death to self, to be conformed by the renewing of their mind, to think differently, to set aside the margin and the time to contemplate and meditate, as Scripture clearly calls us to, on the very character of who God is and who He has set us apart to be. One of my favorite quotes is from C.S. Lewis. It's in a it's in one of his books called The Screwtape Letters. It's about these demons, and they're having these conversations about how to uh, essentially keep the gospel from believers, and one demon is talking to another, and I've shared this before, but it's such a good quote. He says, your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless, jargon, in other words, slogans, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from church. Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. In the context of fighting against you and what God's doing in your life, the greatest thing is for you not to think. For you not to meditate on who God is. But God has clearly called us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. This demands repentance and change. To be transformed is to be changed. It means you have to think differently. You can't be conformed to this world. It demands practice, testing, debate. It's a do. He says do this. Be this. And there is a result of growing discernment that by or then you will be able to discern, to know what is good. This call to meditation is vital for our lives. This is not intellectualism. That's an excuse. I don't want to hear that. I grew up in East Tennessee. I remember when I grew up, any engineer who like, had a degree, because I grew up around Eastman, right? If you, if you had a degree, you didn't have any common sense. That was just the known thing about engineers, right? I heard that all the time. As if getting a degree made you have no common sense. You know what that was? That was people who didn't have degrees who wanted to defend themselves and that lack of effort to lower somebody else rather than say, I appreciate the gifts and the pursuit they've gave. 
And we do the same thing in the context of the church. And again, I'm not talking about degrees. I'm not talking about some pursuit of the study of Scripture so that you win some kind of game of Bible trivia. I'm talking about the study and the meditation on the truths of God's Word that point to life change, that direct us to live differently, to think differently, to adopt a different worldview, to love our spouse differently, to raise our kids differently, to go out on mission with more boldness and more faithfulness. And in the beginning of this, calling is to be transformed by the way we think. And it's a big deal. It happens throughout Scripture. Paul says it in Colossians this way, and I could, I could pick a number, but I want you to hear the parallels to what we've talked about this morning. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, if you've been converted and your position is in Him, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. How do you do that? Paul goes on, he says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Now listen, here's the, listen to this incredible context overlap. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. Isn't that incredible? For you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ. Know your position, Paul says. When Christ, who is, your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Living sacrifice. Die to self and turn to Jesus. Not with part of you, with all of you. This is worship. This is your calling. And there is a huge part of that that plays out first and foremost in the way we think and how we set our minds and so as the team comes up I want to just leave you with a few more practical things from this passage really quick repentance is practiced repentance is practiced man I want to encourage you go home read and study verses three all the way through verse eight You'll see this laid out that God has equipped the church for one another, to serve one another, and that this repentance, this, this transformation of mind isn't just some kind of intellectual thing that floats around in our head. No, this is a worldview that leads to action, and one that has been uniquely set apart by God to work together within the brothers and sisters of the church for the advancement of the gospel and for the glory of God to be made known. You'll see a few things. God has gifted you. Verse 3, God has assigned. Verse 6, according to the grace given to us. Verse 4, for a specific function. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So don't think more highly of yourself. Whatever gift you bring to the body, it is a gift given to you by God. It's His work through you. And not only that, you are not independent. You are a part of a body. God has connected you to one another, for one another. Verse 5, though many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another, he says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, here it is, for the common good, for the good of the body. 
So don't think more highly of yourself. Understand that you have been gifted and set apart to work together to fulfill the calling of dying to self and making known your life in Christ. This is the context in which the spiritual gifts are laid out here by Paul. It's powerful. Think on these things. Repentance is personal. It's personal. Verse 1, this begins, I appeal to you, brother. You. Listen, I don't care if you're in this room and you're an elder. I don't care if this is your first time. And for, man, yesterday was your day of conversion, the first day in which you acknowledged the love of God, that He would send His Son to pay the penalty, to pay your death penalty, so that through faith you might have life in Him. If that was yesterday or that was years ago, Paul says, I appeal to you, brother. Live your life as a living sacrifice. This is your calling. Not for a part, but all of it. And don't for a second feel like God has robbed you of something. That He's taken something from you. Because that's not true. He's given you everything in His Son Jesus. And that's what faith declares. And that is the testimony that each one of us personally get to live out as we live our life as a living sacrifice. Finally, be encouraged that repentance is communal. That we get to do this thing together for the common good. That God has gifted the body to encourage you, to admonish you, to help you, to teach you. That you might have a deeper understanding of who God is and His calling on your life so that day over day He might conform you more and more into the image of His Son Jesus. That day over day you might lay aside more and more of the sin and more and more of the pride and the selfishness that entangles you. That day over day you might die more and more to yourself and be able to stand in position firm, rooted in who Christ is and say, I have life, not of myself, but in Jesus Christ who died for me. Church, God's called you to repent and place faith in Jesus and live it out making known the glory of God by His mercy. Would you pray with me? As we begin to pray, if there's anyone here who's never acted in faith and repentance, who's never deemed Jesus worthy of their life. I want to encourage you in just a moment when we sing, I want to ask you just to go out these doors to your left. There's an area called the hub. Just say, man, I'm, I, I'm wrestling with some of the things Daniel's talking about. Can we talk a little bit? Just go talk to them. But I pray for you that the Lord will so convict you and overwhelm you with his love and his glory that you will deem him worth your life. And that today for the first time in faith through repentance you will cry out Jesus is my Savior. Heavenly Father you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our life. Lord, I pray that you continue to transform us by the renewing of our mind, that you continue 
to sanctify us, to grow us more and more into the image of your Son, that our life may be a life that is a living sacrifice, that is a life of worship, that exalts you and makes you known to every person we come in contact with. Forgive us of where we fail you. Forgive us of our pride and our selfishness that holds on to portions of our life. And Father, strip us of those things that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray all this in the name of your son Jesus, the name of our Savior. Amen. Would you stand and continue in worship and song?